0: To the African Intel Affairs Podcast. My name is Nelson Yorenda, and uh, today I'll be talking about Cry Havoc, written by Simon Mann. The story of Cry Havoc follows Simon Mann as he adventures with his mercenary company all across Africa, liberating various countries, facing off against dictators, and eventually struggling to retain his sanity and his humanity in prisons in Zimbabwe and in Equatorial Guinea. One thing I find very interesting about this book is how Simon, as a character within the story, fits into the formula for the hero's journey, popularized by Joseph Campbell, you know, Everything from his call to adventure in Angola at Soyo to, you know, the crossing of the threshold, the first time he faces this dragon. Oftentimes in the hero's journey, the hero first crosses the threshold at a body of water where the great beast will first make itself known by crossing that abyss you know and Simon quite literally did that when he went on his first mission his first dragon to slay and so I think that's very interesting and so if you've if you've read the book or you haven't read the book try to look at it from that paradigm because um, personally I was quite pleasantly surprised to to find that it it made the book a lot more uh, profound and interesting for me. But instead of focusing on the, the narrow aspect, which would be to focus on, on Simon particularly as a character and as a person, I would rather focus on the broad aspect and what this story reflects about our world, about ourselves as people, and potentially uh, what, what conflicts we may have to resolve in the future as humanity. There's a lot about this book that I could talk about because generally speaking, there's a lot here. But one thing I find very interesting and would like to explore with you is the idea of what is reflected in the book, the world that is reflected in the book. Because one thing that I realized was although we live in this world of modernity and civilization, it exists in the shadow of savagery and barbarism and that all of that wasn't that long ago. That definitely gives you a different context to look at the, uh, world you live in today from. Having gone through the entire story, right? The first thing you might want to ask is how does something like this happen? How do people organize a coup like this and end up getting caught? You know and when you say how does this happen how does this slip the international community's focus what you're really asking is who was involved because it's difficult to think that non-political actors such as mercenaries can make such an overtly political move without some kind of political support right and that immediately brings in questions about the nature of the diplomatic landscape and what stability and balance looks like where that stability and balance is at the moment you know throughout the story particularly uh throughout the the entire uh planning phase of of the equatorial guinea coup man talks about different times where he basically receives um a thumbs up, or some kind of nod in uh, of agreement to this idea or this plan of, of uh, staging this coup in Equatorial Guinea. You know, he essentially receives support, not in so many words, uh, from different uh, countries and intelligence organizations that are basically there to say, look, we've heard about what you're doing and we're all for it. We're all okay with it um but when he's arrested none of these countries come forward to fight for him now certainly there are lawyers involved and there are legal fights happening on behalf of of simon mann but there isn't any kind of diplomatic statement being said by state representatives of any of the countries that had given him those supportive nods, any of the agencies that had given him those kinds of green lights, as he calls them, to say, what he was doing was in defense of democracy, right? What he was doing was what executive outcomes was trying to do was to try and establish the greatest outcome, the greatest good for the greatest number of people, which would have been the people of Equatorial Guinea. Nobody comes out and says that. So and I think that's an interesting thing to 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 note, because Simon Mann, whenever he's deciding which whenever he's deciding whether there is a significant reason to get involved in a conflict in some country, One of the things he considers, at least in the book, is, is it right? Are we fighting for the government or are we fighting against the government? You know, um, and with Equatorial Guinea, that was the first time they were fighting against the government. However, in his mind, it was all justified because this guy was very clearly a dictator. He was very clearly a tyrant. And so that needed to change for the sake of these people. If you're going to appeal that the lives of Africans should be made better, why wouldn't you appeal to Africans? You know, they didn't say anything about that. They sort of, sort of just left it at that. And I think part of the reason would have been to, you know, an apprehension to make their involvement considered to be so overt because, and I feel like one of the reasons that is, is because if we're being honest as much as we can criticize africa for various dictatorial regimes it's like well the first place africa ever experienced tyranny was from the west that's where that's where we we experienced true tyranny for the first time was from the west right um and I, the reason i bring that up is because i feel like contextually it's actually important because a lot of african countries achieved independence whether they fought for it or the the colonial government simply acquiesced and gave up uh, the leadership and the laws which the africans then inherited soon after africans were governing themselves the west sort of had a a desire for the african governance to reach the western standard you know, to to basically look at the West and look at what they're doing and employ that same standard of, of governance with haste to some degree, right? Because we know that there are many mining deals that had started during colonization that were intended to be continued for the economic stability of these countries that were now governing themselves, you know, uh, whether it was mining, whether it was oil, etc. So we needed to reach the the uh, Western level of of democratic and diplomatic governance, so that we could we could, uh, so that that could facilitate all the trade agreements and and future uh, diplomatic relationships between our countries. Uh, the reason I think it's important contextually is because You know, people sometimes ask the question of why aren't Africans united, particularly when Africans were united by oppression, right, colonization. And it's like, well, I think one of the main reasons is that we don't identify as Africans, right? We identify specifically according to our own heritage, right, our own culture our own traditions. Some people are Zulu, some people are Xhosa, some people are, are Bedi, you know, some people are Shona, some people are, and so they identify as that, you know, uh, they don't identify as simply African. Their identity are those traditional nuances, those cultural nuances that distinguish them from the African who lives 200 miles that way. Um, And so under the colonial regime, in a lot of areas, some of these traditional beliefs would have been considered uncivilized or barbaric, and so the Africans couldn't act out those tradi- those traditions or, or rituals, and none of these traditions and cultures were written down. So you can assume that the traditions and the cultures that we know and have today are what the Africans under colonial regime we're able to talk about, we're able to practice. You have to assume that there's going to be a couple ideas, traditions that are lost simply because they they, they couldn't, practice it anymore they couldn't tell their kids about it anymore because of the 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 rule of colonial law saying well that's that's barbarism or that's uncivilized get rid of that we don't do that anymore or christianity saying that's that's derived from paganism or is satanic in nature or something like that so there's a lot of um cultural identity that is then lost right and so you have to remember that african governance was never formal and so now once colonization is over, Africans are sort of trying to re-identify who they are on an identity level, right? Um what does it mean to be Zulu? What are your traditions? What are your cultures? What do you believe? What does it mean to be to be something else? So what does it mean to be your nuanced tradition, your your nuanced um um culture, you know at the same time they're also trying to develop their understanding and effective implementation of the western format of governance and administration right and so certainly there is a way that one could look at it at the look at a government support for an african a western government support for an african coup as somewhat tyrannical, right, because on a very simplistic level, right, tyranny is using force to get what you want on a very simplistic level. So it's a bully, as as man describes them many times in the book, it's someone who uses force to get what they want. And there is a way that you can certainly see um the sanctioning of of that kind of use of force by another government as an inability to appreciate the nuance the culture and the communal living experience and an overall impatience you know a desire for the the african governance to reach western standards right so in in that there's the question of what is considered like acceptable governance right? Because when we say tyranny, we think human rights abuses, we think really, really bad things are happening. So, you know, it's not as simple as saying, well, I don't understand the African culture, let's get a a, a more westernized leader in place. But the, you, you know, being a country that can be associated with, with uh, comfortably using coups, can also put you in a position where it seems like, how how can anyone really know that you're not willing to use a coup to replace a government that you feel needs replacing simply because their form of governance is one that you don't recognize, or don't recognize in its entirety. And so that's enough for you to say that it's it's broken, it's not good enough, it needs to be replaced, right? Um, and so from that perspective, from that paradigm, you can definitely see a coup as being tyrannical. And I can see why uh, certain, like internationally, the 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 powers that may have been involved wouldn't want their involvement to to be known because of of that association. Um, there's also the the association of the the country with mercenaries, right? Classically, mercenaries are immoral they are guns for hire and therefore the only morality that matters to them is how much you're willing to pay them and so there is this like stereotypical perception that mercenaries are immoral so how could a government be associated with those kinds of people when despite the church and state being separated the people need to know and people in general need to know that their government has an appreciation for for moral values you know and so the association of a government with mercenaries can hardly be seen as um justice or um righteous in any kind of of light even with the justification of of um well that guy's a tyrant right uh it's best to fight fire with fire but going back to this idea of of um how can anyone trust that you won't use a coup against someone who whose only crime is 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 being too different for you to understand um diplomacy when we when we talk about international relations and relationships diplomacy is founded on trust and compromise you know in other words to some degree your word is bond you know um because your diplomacy diplomacy means nothing if no one can trust a single word out of your mouth so when it came to the this coup attempt there were there were many rumors surrounding who was involved because the equatorial guinea coup was sort of a poorly kept secret you see, uh, it it even in the book Simon Mann describes. You know, by the time they they are ready to to move on this project, it's like there were many many leaks involved. I wonder how much something can be considered a leak when it is being discussed in a se- semi public forum at Chatham House. It's like, well, uh, is that really a leak, or or is the tap just wide open at that point? And so there was information that basically emerged that stated that the British government had received information regarding this coup months before it happened. Now, there's the understanding or explanation that, well, the reason they didn't tell the government of Equatorial Guinea is that um, it was unsubstantiated. Maybe there's not enough evidence to think that such a thing would actually happen. Right. But on the other hand, once something like this does try to happen and, and it seems like you don't say anything about it, because as much as everyone else, every other country may have given man a green light or an amber light, he is your citizen. And someone else is saying that they told you about it months before it happened. Um, to some degree, the question must be asked, were they looking to gain something? were they looking to take advantage of the coup and once you look at them in that light the trust upon which diplomacy must be founded is essentially sh- is a- is essentially shaken and the prospect of compromise or or any kind of diplomatic negotiations becomes becomes one with a negative association because you inherently think these people are only have their best interests at in mind even if it comes at the cost of of your well-being or the well-being of your people right another sort of uh action that can be considered as 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 a sign of of untrustworthiness was the fact that spain sent i believe two frigates off the coast of equatorial guinea right before the the coup was scheduled to happen and the, the thinking is that like Spain was there to provide any kind of support that the the um that executive outcomes might have needed after taking Equatorial Guinea in order to hold Equatorial Guinea. Um and the Spaniards they obviously were saying oh no we're conducting training exercises or um I believe there was there was something else said about they were trying to protect Equatorial Guinea. Uh, Because they had heard these rumors, even though they didn't communicate those rumors to Equatorial Guinea. So, you know, a situation like this just muddies the diplomatic waters. It makes people look at each other as untrustworthy, and any kind of negotiation is now suspect because you're thinking that. This person isn't trying to create some kind of uh, diplomatic compromise where I can get something, they can get something, and we both have to make sacrifices. Um, instead, you know, you're always watching your back for the for for the other shoe to drop. The other shoe being some kind of of attack or um, essentially a, an attempt to compromise your sovereignty as, as a as a state actor. But ironically, right, the flip side of this was that South Africa managed to communicate um, what what they had heard regarding this coup to Equatorial Guinea, to Zimbabwe. They are the reason why Simon Mann essentially and and Executive Outcomes essentially got caught because they were able to, to coordinate together and say, something strange is happening. Let's keep an eye out together um, and, and, and see what's going on. Um, it was through the cooperation and sharing of information between South Africa, Zimbabwe and Equatorial Guinea, that a sting operation could be implemented to capture Simon Mann and the group traveling to to Equatorial Guinea and ultimately foiling the, the coup itself. And there are a number of questions around, um, the capture of Simon man for example in the book if things happened the way and from what i've i've looked into things pretty much happened the way he says they did when when uh the, when they were caught and there is no other thought process beyond the idea of uh someone grasped them up someone uh gave them up um and so the, the question of who you know possibly Simon would know better than than any of us. But I can't help but entertain the idea that um, considering all we've discussed regarding using mercenaries in order to stage a coup, uh, what the perception might be and what that might do toward uh, diplomatic relations. um, I can't help but wonder if there wasn't a, a government agency or, uh, you know, an actor acting on behalf of the gov- of, of a government, who w- tipped Zimbabwe off or or tipped Equatorial Guinea off, for the sake of diplomacy, for the sake of of being able to have a conversation and have a sense a level of trust between you two, in order to facilitate uh, compromise for later uh, diplomatic relationships. Um, this brings me back to when Simon Mann one of the things he talks about because you know in the book he describes the you know um his his he describes the fear and anxiety he feels toward this 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 operation as a black coiling serpent in his in his belly and every time the anxiety and fear becomes more palpable the the sort of uh serpent uncoils inside of him and you know right right in the final moments right right up until they were caught or at least right up until they were moving toward the airport to to execute the the coup simon Mann was nervous he was he was anxious as i'm sure anyone would be but he kept going over in his mind over this you know in his mind this idea of green lights and red lights, where in his mind, he can see this board. And next to each board is the name of a a powerful state actor, whether it's a a nation or an agency. And he's either got green lights or orange lights. Green lights saying, go ahead with with this coup. We're backing you 100%. Orange lights being, we're not going to get involved. And if you succeed, great. But we're not going to try to stop you either. You know, um, but he had no red lights, no explicit signals from anyone saying we aren't on board with this. We don't support this. We veto this. Let, let it be known that we're not on board. You know, um, he never had that kind of, of perception. And he says, you know, if I get one red light, I quit. I'm, I'm going to stop this in its tracks. We're not moving ahead. If I get a single red light from any of these people. But he doesn't. He doesn't get that red light. And, you know, perhaps that was his own thinking that there was a, a mutual understanding, like there was an understanding of of letting him and his group do what they have to do without any of the, the nations or the, the agencies getting their diplomatic hands dirty. And so to some degree, you can certainly see this idea of without any explicit red stop signals, you know, on some level, if 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 I was Simon Mann, I certainly would consider everyone else as guilty as I was, because, or at least complicit, you know, because if, or in many different ways, people knew what was happening. They had an idea of what would would happen, considering they'd seen Angola, seen Sierra Leone, and to to some degree, that's why they were comfortable with it, because it was him at the helm, doing what he has shown he can do best, and you know without any kind of explicit red stop signal, there is that level of, of complicitness where um, no one can really say they disagreed with his methods or his philosophies on what needed to be done in order to create a regime that would be open to democracy and diplomacy and in the, the modern civil society. And again, you know, like I said, it wasn't really a well kept secret. And in uh even in the instances where people spoke about it in in a place like Chatham house you have to think about the countries who would have used that information that they gathered to disseminate that information for the sake of building trust for the as a gesture of good faith for the sake of building future relationships and I think that displays an aspect of the nature of the relationships between um, countries in the West and countries in Africa, in that there are some countries perhaps the West feels a bit uncomfortable a- approaching, you know, uh, without a real understanding of where the comfort zone is. And so maybe making that gesture of of good faith doesn't seem as obvious. It doesn't seem as as, as simple an action to take um, if you're not sure how well it will be received. You know, if if, for example, telling a dictator that someone's planning a coup against you and then the citizens suddenly start being executed in the streets and hung from streetlights it's like well wouldn't you be directly responsible for what's happening because you made him more paranoid you know so it is in that realm of of perhaps missing a level of comfort that that uh, facilitates an approach you know uh, a level of approachability that can facilitate the diplomatic interaction um to augment the idea of not being able to to communicate comfortably it's like one could ask yourself why Simon Mann didn't talk to to African governments right because tyranny is tyranny and when, when human rights are being violated, why wouldn't you, why would, why would it be okay to speak to Western governments about the problems and not speak to the African governments? You know, on some level, perhaps you think they sympathize with him. And on another level, it might be, well, how do you broach that subject? You know, how do you, you know, there might be some cultural nuances that are involved that make you to you might seem like this is another evidence of tyranny but to them they look at it and say well that's just normal for africans you know so uh there is this this sort of disconnect between between um sort of the west and africa uh with regard to certain um topics of discussion certain truths certain nuances that i feel on some level have to be addressed in some way or another we have to find a way to be able to have open conversations to allow you know westerners to understand the nuance of 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 uh certain things and be able to ask questions without being afraid that they're offending somebody and vice versa you know for africans to be able to 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 ask about the nuance of certain things and say well we don't really believe in that um and 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 be able to uh compromise and reconcile with one another that we are different groups but the nature of acceptance isn't always um acceptance of what you're comfortable with or what you're what you understand you know um on some level compromise and diplomacy require that level of acceptance there is that element of why didn't he feel comfortable you know cluing people in on the african sphere as to what he was doing and yet it wasn't really much of a secret you know and so that already has uh connotations regarding the breakdown of trust and diplomacy to to be aware that certain western governments know nobody's saying anything uh we know what this simon Man guy is doing he's not talking to us he's not approaching us to say look this guy's a tyrant let's get him out of there you know um maybe again it could have come back to greed the lack of interest in sharing uh the spoils of of what comes afterwards which again is just a human a human thing but coming back to this idea of uh of these these countries sort of sanctioning or agreeing with the the ideas of executive outcomes or the philosophies we should talk about how executive outcomes for better or worse, set new standards and and change the world in certain ways. With the success in Angola, uh, Simon Mann and executive outcomes showcased how private military contractors could be successful with regard to uh, military intervention in Africa. Mann has has spoken. One of the primary ideals his group would follow would would be that of discipline. Right. And so, as we saw with, for example, the Seychelles coup, the mercenaries got there drunk. And it was that lack of discipline that led to one mercenary dropping a gun, and the coup was over before it even started. Right. So you need the discipline to conduct the operation professionally. But at the same time, the discipline not to indulge in the cruelties and, and barbarism of war, as sometimes War can be intoxicating in that way. And so discipline is required. Another thing that man speaks about as a key principle whenever conducting any of these operations is swiftness. With the Equatorial Guinea coup, even though the fact that uh, there were lots of informational leaks, something man was very well aware of, he felt that it wouldn't matter if they could beat anyone's response to it if he, if they could conduct the operation and succeed before anyone had a chance to organize and respond to it. I think the second the Spanish frigates showed up, it would have been time to rethink things simply because that would have been proof that you guys aren't acting fast enough. Like people are organizing and responding and people have even planned to position themselves in certain ways before the coup has even happened. So clearly we're not fast enough at this point. Um, but i think the 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 principle of swiftness is important simply because any country that would use a private military contracting group to go and engage in a war would essentially be taking a primary role um in that conflict you know and in taking that primary role You don't want a conflict to be too protracted. You don't want to now be responsible for a war that has continued for, you know, eight years. And it's like when you entered, the war had already been going on for 10 years. And now you became like a a, a primary belligerent within that war. And still you haven't been able to wrap it up, you know. So having a swift, airtight operation that can end the war, you know, reasonably quickly is uh, favorable, as opposed to this idea of the mercenary group that fits into the stereotype of being warmongers who have no interest in stopping wars because that's the only way they get paid. Being able to, to be swift and disciplined and essentially stop these wars quickly would be ultimately beneficial for any country that chooses to get involved because one of the reasons why a country may may say let's not get involved in that is simply because sometimes it might be difficult to justify to the domestic citizens why their brothers and sisters are dying in foreign soil in a fight that really isn't theirs you know a fight that really doesn't have to do much with them and the way they live their lives and has more to do with ideals and in some conflicts it's just too risky you know there's 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 too much of a risk of consistently losing good soldiers and having to keep sending soldiers in without any kind of clear timeline for when this will all end so having an alternative option where your soldiers you aren't at risk therefore you don't have really anything to explain to to the local public while also being able to advocate for diplomacy democracy and and fighting against tyranny and the operation itself is conducted by a disciplined and professional team with an airtight plan who are in and out of there relatively speaking quickly without a without creating a protracted war where where people can then look at you and say well you've been a you know you may have contracted these this prime private military group but essentially you and this group are primary belligerents in this war and you are kind of the reason it's continued for so long you know um yes technically it's continued because the rebels won't stop fighting back but you're who they're fighting so you want these conflicts resolved quickly so that you're not sowing war for a an extended period of time. And so certainly I can see the use of private military contractors, especially when you look through the paradigm of of order and chaos. The nature of order around the world is developing as it always has been. And with the advent of technology we have greater methods for surveillance and therefore security and the more this surveillance technology becomes present and commonplace in 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 modern cities and environments the less places certain insurgent groups and organizations have to to hide um, now certainly they may hide in certain groups um, and and rooms online. But in physical space, it becomes more difficult when information becomes a lot more connected, lies and deceits are able to be scrutinized far more and cross referenced far more with information available. And with with camera surveillance, you know, uh, when you've got hundreds of millions of cameras, um, it becomes very difficult to to operate as an insurgent group without being um, um, identified, especially if you're going to act and stay in the country. You know, this leads me to my point that, you know, a lot of certain areas in Africa are so chaotic, that they are becoming havens and hotbeds for sort of insurgent activity. And in, in I, and I certainly wouldn't be surprised if very soon, they just become sort of insurgent hotels, where insurgents can conduct their operations in in Western countries, for example, and then hide out in the heart of darkness where there are no cameras or there there is no rule of law to 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 provide the order um, through which investigations can be done, etc. It essentially creates the perfect place for them to hide and coordinate so i can certainly see the use of private military contractors to help remove some of these these insurgents while helping establish order and in this way the private military contractors can help develop a sort of peacekeeping uh, system a, a peacekeeping protocol if you'd call it that where the African nation's armies and soldiers can be educated and trained in this peacekeeping protocol. This way, they can do it for themselves if ever they have to. One of the concerns I have with the idea of using a coup to fight back against a tyrant or a bully and um, to fight back against an an illegitimate or tyrannical regime um, is this idea that even though the West may recognize a certain person as a a dictator or a tyrant, the people who live under that dictator will not see that dictator the same way Westerners do. There might still be a shared disdain, a shared recognition that this is a tyrant, but the locals have an appreciation for the nuance of, 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 of who... The tyrant is in the context of their traditions their culture and their heritage now a tyrant is still a tyrant but context context allows for deeper understanding the point of this is for someone in the west to decide that these people need liberating and this is the way we're going to do it in all likelihood a coup or a kinetic event essentially as, as a tool to establish peace. When I speak about, you know, a group like Executive Outcomes, for example, um, conducting operations while educating the local forces on how to, to conduct their own, uh, peacekeeping, um, protocols, their own peacekeeping strategies. It's this idea that the change toward civility the change toward um diplomatic democratic and essentially just governance has to come the bulk of that change comes after the coup the bulk of that change comes after the kinetic conflict you see and i feel as though uh simon Mann understood that to some degree um because in every case you know he certainly thought about the coup. He certainly thought about the plan for the coup, but he always had a plan for what comes next or what comes after. For example, with Equatorial Guinea, there was this idea to to is sort of establish his forces as the the you know president's immediate guard. You know this idea that they would help protect him while this person instituted the nuanced changes with the appreciation for the culture, the, the the traditional norms that all the people need to help them flourish, right? To help them flourish within the context of their heritage and therefore their identity. This country isn't just a name, you know, that is recognized by the West, but it's, it's, a nation whose identity is recognized by the West and the identity is yours, the locals. It's not an identity thrust upon you by someone else's definition of what is right or wrong or what is civil or uncivil. It is your identity. And so, you know, that certainly made me think that he has, an, he ha, you know, has or had that um, appreciation for the fact that after the conflict, You need those nuanced changes. That's where the real change occurs. That's where the meaningful making people's lives better, right? Because if you're going to justify it by saying these people are living terribly, we need to make their lives better. That's how it's done. It's not the conflict. It's what comes after that's the most important. You know, the conflict essentially is there to open the door to what comes after. The tyrant is the one who won't let that door be opened because that door needs opening regardless of whether or not the conflict happens it's it's the door that o- is always needing opening regardless of whether or not the conflict occurs that also addresses the fact that you know Simon Mann would say we're going to be super rich off of this but I'm doing it because I care and people could you know would be you know in my opinion rightfully skeptical that um, as much as you say you're doing it because you care, would you really be doing it if if you weren't making any money from 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 this? Um, and I think in the instance where the nuance of of a country and its its inhabitants is is considered in the strategy of what comes after the coup, what comes after we fight these rebels back or, or or take the insurgents out, how do we make people's lives better with an appreciation for the nuance, right, of towing the line between their heritage and their identity and the modern world. The appreciation of that nuance would certainly feel more sincere by co- when it comes from someone who appreciates the nuance someone who comes from that environment it feels far more sincere than someone who comes from somewhere else making a boatload of money doing this saying i'm doing it because i care and so finally there is another context that i read this book from and another context that i actually enjoyed it from If you've ever heard of the concept of the hero's journey, which is basically these story beats in storytelling, oftentimes the best stories in history um, embody the, the hero's journey. And what's so interesting about Simon Mann's story is that in a lot of ways, he as a character embodies the hero's journey. I mean, even the the role that water plays within uh, the story, you know, within the hero's journey, water is considered a, an analogy for the, the mind and the psyche. And I find it interesting in one point, uh, for example, in the hero's journey, the hero, the first time they 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 answer the call to adventure, they meet the great beast at the threshold, which is usually marked by water. And the first time Simon Mann essentially answered the call to adventure uh, in Angola at Soyo, he was on a boat as he approached the battle. He was on a boat, the threshold of water and the beast being the battle itself. Um, another one is how um, when he was in prison, he used to ration his water and he would make sure at the end of each day he had about i think like an inch of water left um so i just found that parallel interesting this idea that he's he drinks the water while trying to make sure there's a specific amount of water left and when you think about his sanity it's like he was talking to himself he was pretending to be air traffic controllers in in various countries and it's like It's almost like that analogy of the water being the psyche within the hero's journey came through because he's giving up some of his sanity to make sure an integral amount of sanity remains. So I think it's a very interesting book if you read it through that lens as well. But to wrap this all up, I'll, I'll say this. The Wangoku was a very shocking event, but what was more shocking was the implications it had for the diplomatic relationships between countries. The idea that certain countries could back mercenaries in the name of removing a government and on some level, the principles of diplomacy are sort of breached at that level. You know and so it's, it can be a very concerning thing to think about and especially as a situation to look upon it was certainly one of those situations where you can tell that everybody probably involved knows a lot more than they're saying or the story they're giving is probably not the official story and all the implications about the relationships between countries just imply that things are not as tight as they could be and of course there are negative associations with mercenaries and all that, um, but as Simon Mann has said, you know, he prefers the term condottiere, which refers to sort of a nobleman who would lead knights um, or mercenaries um, under under his his rule, um, who also had to fought, who also had to on some level follow uh, codes of chivalry under the condottiere, because they were a reflection of him this nobleman so um, i think that the old stereotype of the mercenary is definitely one that this event sort of made people rethink this idea that they could be an effective group they could be used to affect change and what is the right way and what is the wrong way you know um what is the proper way for for countries to handle this do they talk to one another and consider you know and consider the the diplomatic um value of both entities being countries to 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 talk it through or do they merely consider the fact that well we don't like that country and so we're not going to say anything you know there there is something about the ideals of of, of diplomacy that are is is sort of voided by doing that um and you know not to mention the the foundation of trust that should facilitate any compromise that comes with with uh, diplomacy you know so it's it's it was definitely one of those events that that made people sort of take a look at international relationships the perception of mercenaries and all of that and sort of rethink what we knew with that in mind this idea of 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 at least the the chivalrous mercenary or essentially the knight because the codes of chivalry um, this sort of higher standard of moral behavior knights were held to, although not not uh, accurate, not directly represented in any kind of like historical record, and mainly represented in like uh, romances and tales of, of, of uh, for example Sir Arthur, of 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 King Arthur. The what what the history tells us is that knights were terrible people. A reputation much like mercenaries and to be honest in a lot of ways a lot worse and so these codes of chivalry were supposed to to help them become more honorable become uh, 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 people who didn't who didn't leave terror in their wake you know Um, and so to want private military contractors to to live up to such a a, you know a, a standard um makes sense and historically there is already that precedent that exists so now it just comes a matter of defining that that uh that sense of chivalry i will i will say this um to end off with regard to that i will say that um within the romances and the tales of king arthur the knights were you know Oftentimes, chivalry comes with the conflict of temptation. Um, For example, uh, Lancelot was tempted by Guinevere. You know, uh, and so it's this idea that if you look at it through the paradigm of of the story of Cry Havoc, you know, the temptation of of, uh, wealth beyond measure through oil and, and, and other such contracts versus the virtue and chivalry of, of taking down a bully and establishing a better way of life for the people who are oppressed, you know, resolving that conflict, figuring out which is the right way to do things. And what might it have looked like if, if, um, the right way was pursued the entire time, you know, um so you know there there is that that element to the whole thing and i think uh i think that uh, it's interesting to see how history is sort of uh, paralleling in that way beyond that there isn't really much else i want to say um otherwise i'll go on for too long thank you again for listening i hope you found my 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 evaluation and analysis of uh this book and the historical events upon which it is based Thank you for listening or I'll see you on the next one.